Amen. Good morning. Welcome again to Hillside. So glad that you guys are with us this morning. If you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2 is where we'll be this morning. Um, Just wanted to mention too, just in case uh, you're wondering what are all the flowers about around the building, Um, we were able to celebrate the life of Jackie Heckathorn yesterday in a funeral service and then also grieve the loss um, of a great woman of God, at least here on this earth. And so um, if you know the Heckathorn family or um, get to know them, um, just would love for you to be aware that we can continue to ask them how they're doing. Um, I know from personal experience, recent personal experience, that the hard days actually come after the funeral weekend is over because it just life gets back to normal. And so I would love for us as a body to be aware of that and just be loving on that family. Um, but it was good to celebrate a life that was well-lived for the gospel. And so uh, we're going to miss her terribly, um, but she's with Jesus, and that's good. Today we are continuing our sermon series that we've titled Under the Sun, and I said this last week, but it bears repeating. The phrase under the sun is a phrase that Solomon uses in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, close to 30 times. Why does he use this phrase under the sun? Well, the goal of the phrase that he's using is to point us to the reality of what life would look like without God. Under the sun, or what we can see, almost as if you've placed a bowl over the top of the earth and God is not involved at all. What does it mean to live a life without God in it? Or what does it look like to live a life under the sun? And this is really Solomon's question in Ecclesiastes. Maybe you'll remember this also, but from last week we talked about Solomon's thesis for this book, and it's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. And really the thesis is that he puts out as this, life is empty under the sun. Life is empty under the sun. It's important for us to know as we study Ecclesiastes that this is really not all that Solomon is going to have to say. It's not the conclusion that he comes to. But he starts here with this thesis. He says, vanity of vanities. And maybe you'll remember I said that doesn't make a good throw pillow. And then last week on Monday, I showed up in my office and there was a pillow on my couch in my office that said vanity of vanities. And then on the other side, it said live, laugh, love. (laughs) So two women in our church blessed me with that. Why does Solomon do this? What, What is his goal? Is his goal in the book of Ecclesiastes to depress us to the point where we're like, what are we even doing here? No. We need to know that this isn't his final verdict on life, but he really wants to sort of shock those of us who are trying to live a life apart from God into this reality of what we are actually doing to ourselves. He's saying that living a life apart from God, living life without living trust in God, is meaningless. It's empty, it's vain, life is empty if your only plan is to live for what is under the sun. Solomon knows, and he's come to this conclusion, all substitutes for finding true enjoyment and meaningful, well-grounded satisfaction in life, other than God himself or apart from God, 
end up empty. And so today, if he thinks that maybe we don't believe him, (laughs) he's going to catalog for us some different ways that he has tried to find satisfaction in life apart from God under the sun. And so as we dive into chapter 2 today, I would love for us to think about this reality, and I think it's true, but I think that in some way, shape, or form, we all subscribe to a broken worldly philosophy that hurts us, and this is the philosophy. We believe that what, we, but what will ultimately satisfy us is just a little more than we already have. Some of us might have a hard time with that statement. Some of us might feel like, no, I'm satisfied right now. But I do think that at our core, there's a little bit of this broken philosophy that says, what will ultimately satisfy me is just a little more than I already have. Here's how I would like to maybe prove my point is I'd love for us to ask this question. For me to be happy... I need blank. For me to be happy, I need fill in the blank. It could be for me to be happy, I need a new phone. And that might not be true for all of us, but if you're young enough, I mean, my kids are asking for phones all the time. And the answer is no. But for me to be happy, I need a new house. For me to be happy, I need a promotion, or for me to be happy, I need a new boss, or a new relationship, or a clean house. I think that would make me happy. For me to be happy, I need help with all of my to-dos. For me to be happy, I need health, and on and on and on we go. When I was in grade school, as a kid, one of the greatest things that you could own, first, second, third grade, was a Nintendo with Duck Hunt. Does anybody remember that game? I used to believe that for me to be happy, I needed a Nintendo, like all my friends had. Here's what happened, though. Nintendo upgraded, and they graduated to the Super Nintendo, and so then at that point, it became, for me to be happy, I need a Super Nintendo. And my parents never made me happy. But then... This point came where it was the Super, the Nintendo 64. And then at the exact same time, PlayStation started making consoles. And then at the exact same time, Xbox came out. I could be wrong with my timing on that. So if you're a game historian, I'm sorry. But. And then the game makers have continued to come up with these new systems. And with this this really dumb illustration, you and I can see that the constant desire for the next and the greatest thing starts when we're kids. But then we grow up, right? And the hard truth is that the thing or the things that we might want changes, although some of you might want a Nintendo again. But the desire for something new that might satisfy doesn't seem to change, doesn't seem to go away as we get older. And in Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon's going to spend his time this morning trying to expose this philosophy of more would make me happy. And he wants to expose it, and he wants us to see that this philosophy is garbage. He isn't just... A thinker, though, he's not just this guy that's like, 
trying to envision what a world with more stuff would look like, he's actually going to help us understand this from his own testimony. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 just as we get started. Solomon says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Okay, what's happening here? What's Solomon going to do for us here in this chapter? Well, we could title this section, Solomon Tries Hedonism. What do I mean by hedonism? Well, I mean that Solomon tries pleasure-seeking as a means for satisfaction. Hedonism is the pursuit of or the devotion to pleasure, especially to the pleasures of the senses. I read one time or heard one time a pastor say, within the house of hedonism, there are many rooms. And here's what we know of Solomon's life. He tries to sleep in every available room in the house of hedonism. We're going to read about it today. The point of hedonism is that pleasure is the highest good and that only pleasure has value in itself. And so Solomon starts today by rating this quest as a total failure. Before he tells us anything else, he says that didn't work. He says it's vanity, and what is the use? Now, I wonder if you're like me, but the first thing that comes to my mind as I see Solomon saying it doesn't work is, okay, Solo, I'm going to call him Solo, okay, Solo, There might be some things that won't bring satisfaction in life. I believe you on that. But there are a lot of ways that you can find satisfaction, and you didn't have cars, so you just wouldn't get it. There are some ways that you can find meaning in this life under the sun by seeking pleasure. There are other things that you just wouldn't understand. And so my assessment would probably be that you just aren't doing it right, Solomon. Or Solomon, you really just haven't experienced some of the things that I've experienced. And it's as if Solomon responds to this kind of rebuttal by saying, well, let me just catalog a few things for you that I have tried for satisfaction. Let me show you how hard I've tried. Let me prove to you that I know what I'm talking about. And so starting in verse 3, he says this, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. What is Solomon saying here in verse 3? Well, he says, my first stop in looking for satisfaction in pleasure was with wine. Solomon goes to the bar, we could title this verse. And I imagine that in a room like this, alcohol is a controversial topic. I bet there are multiple very distinct groups of people in a room like this. And if I'm honest, I would love to not touch that subject with a 10-foot pole. So let's move on. Just kidding. Because it can be so polarizing, right? It's a polarizing topic, but Solomon goes here in Ecclesiastes, and so let me invite us for a second to just look at what the Bible says about alcohol. According to Scripture, as a whole, and even right here in Ecclesiastes, wine can be a joyous thing when it is used as God intended it. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 7 says this, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. 
for God has already approved what you do. Ecclesiastes 10.19 says, Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. And then on the other hand, the Bible is clear that wine can be bad and evil when it is used and abused against God's design for it. The Bible clearly condemns drunkenness as evil, and there are too many people in our lives that we know that alcohol has ruined their life. Ephesians 5 actually tells us clearly, do not get drunk. Why? Because it's debauchery, Ephesians 5 says. What is that? Well, that's wickedness. So the world would show us, and we'll probably see this at Super Bowl time, the world would show us these commercials where alcohol is just joy and fun, but there's never a behind-the-scenes look at the damage that it does to somebody's life, or can do to somebody's life. And my point in all of this is just to say that the Bible says positive things and negative things about alcohol. Wine can be used in an appropriate way, and it can be used in inappropriate ways. Solomon's point in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is not to say that wine is bad all by itself. Solomon is saying that using alcohol to anesthetize yourself or using it to intoxicate yourself is never going to bring you any lasting satisfaction. And then he moves on to verses 4 through 6 with the pleasure of products and projects. And he says this, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself, myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. And so something that I think is fascinating in these verses, verses 4 through 6, is the word that Solomon uses to describe all these things. He uses myself multiple times. Solomon says, he made all these things for himself. There was no desire to do these great things in order to help his community or in order to host people and share what God had given him. He just comes right out and he says, I did this for me, for personal gratification. In 1 Kings, we can see a lot of this play out if you want to see Solomon's wealth. Solomon built God's house and he also built his own place that took him 13 years and it was bigger than the temple he built for God. He built houses and shrines for his wives, of which he had 700. What a man. This, <laughs> this search for satisfaction is pretty relevant to us in our culture too. Why? Because we think if we could just have a bigger house or a, a nicer neighborhood, we will be happy. Some of us feel that way. Or maybe we could just have a house on a lake. That'd be kind of nice. Solomon had it all. His grand achievements are really indicated by the fact that everything in verses 4 through 6 occurs in the plural, right? Did you see that? He had houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, trees, and pools. And if you own this much stuff, then you're definitely going to need a workforce, a huge work workforce to run your daily operations. So look at verse 7. It says this, I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I, also, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So Solomon had people waiting on him hand and foot. He had people running his houses. He had people mowing his lawns, doing his dishes, and you might say something like this, man, wouldn't that be nice? 
a maid to clean my house or a chef to make my meals or someone to clear all my snow. Amen. (laughs) Solomon had all of that. And you might wonder, okay, well, then how did he feed all these people? Well, in verse 7, it said he had great possessions of herds and flocks. Look at what 1 Kings 4, verse 22 through 23 says this. This is crazy to me. Solomon's provision for one day. Don't miss that. Solomon's position for provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, which would be like 15,000 pounds, and 60 cores of meal, so double that, 60,000, or 60, what did I say, 30,000 pounds, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Every day. Solomon's royal chefs prepared all of this daily, according to 1 Kings chapter 4. It's probably pointless then to tell you all that Solomon had a lot of money and a lot of resources. You could read 1 Kings 10 just to see how vast his wealth was, but the start of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 8 says this, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. Think think about what he's saying. He wasn't just a rich person. This verse tells us that he had the gross domestic product of provinces. The man had the money of multiple nations. 2 Chronicles 9, verse 27 says it this way, And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah, whatever that is. (laughs) I'm a pastor, I shouldn't say that. So he had so much silver, according to these verses, that it was as common as rocks. And then in verse 8, he goes on to say, I got singers, both men and women. Now, just for a little context, iTunes and Spotify did not exist then. In fact, that didn't exist when I was a kid. So it didn't matter, though, for Solomon, because he was just going to buy the choir to sing the songs for him. Finally, verse 8 says this, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. 1 Kings 11, chapter chapter 11, verse 3, gives us the raw statistics on what Solomon is saying here. It says in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. So, simply put, concubines were objects that Solomon used for his own personal pleasure. He indulged in sexual pleasure. And it's just one of the ugly truths that we see in the Bible of sinful men. I've said this before in here, but the Bible often will describe a person's life, but not prescribe that life for us. The Bible isn't saying you should have 700 wives and 300 concubines. But I think that we should stop here for a minute and say that this area of sexual pleasure seems especially relevant to our world and our culture today. So many people are on this endless search for this kind of pleasure. And while it might not look exactly like it did for Solomon, it happens as people constantly look for new, illicit experiences in order to be satisfied. Or maybe it's a romance novel. 
or maybe it's a movie, or quite possibly it's the internet. But we're aware, just like Solomon, I guarantee if any of us brought that to light in our own lives, we're aware, just like Solomon, that these things just don't satisfy a person. In fact, we leave emptier. You don't end up with 700 wives if you're satisfied. The point of these first eight verses is that Solomon had it all, or what we might say he had it all. And if we're honest, we might find ourselves just a little envious of Solomon, at least parts of his life. Who wouldn't want to live like a king? Who wouldn't want a nicer house or better views or think of all that money? Well, look at how Solomon summarizes his experiment in verses 9 through 11. He says this, So, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Verse 11 says this, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon essentially says this, you will never have the kind of fun I had because you do not have the resources that I have. And I am telling you that the yield was nothing. All of that for nothing. The yield was like chasing after the wind. It had no benefit. Why? Because Solomon knows this to be true. Pleasure pursued for its own sake does not and cannot satisfy the soul. Pleasure pursued for its own sake does not and it cannot satisfy the soul. And I want us to focus just for a second on our current context. I want to say this as gently and as, as, as gently as possible. But I feel like this is an appropriate time for us to say that the cry of this generation is this. Do not repress your desires because this is dangerous and it leads to depression, maybe even suicide. No matter what you desire, whatever it is, whether it has to do with your gender identity or your sexual orientation, pleasure, or dreams, our world tells us this. Do not repress your desires. Hear this clearly from God's word, and this is where I just want to be careful, but hear this so clearly from God's word. It is such a gift. Solomon is lovingly warning you and I here that indulging in whatever feels good is dangerous. You may get all that you ever wanted, but I promise you this, you will not want it when you get it. It will not satisfy you. God loves you, and he knows that indulging under the sun leads to brokenness. And hear this so clearly, pleasure is not bad. But because of the fall, pleasure cannot be our final guide. Let's say it like this, pleasure is a good thing. But if it is turned into a God thing, pleasure becomes an enslaving thing. Pleasure is a good thing. 
But when it is turned into a God thing, it becomes an enslaving thing. Solomon moves from pleasure then, and then he writes in verse 12, and I'm just going to cruise through the rest of the chapter here real fast. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And so what Solomon is doing here is he's reconsidering where the meaning of life comes from. He's tried pleasure. It didn't work. Now, why not try the opposite? I'm going to check out wisdom again. And the reason that he is reconsidering wisdom is to make sure that he has looked at every conceivable angle. Solomon wants to be able to write the final word about the meaning of life. And so he desires to make his quest as comprehensive as possible. What does he conclude about wisdom? Well, at first, in verses 13 through 14, which we won't read, he concludes that wisdom has a relatively greater value than foolishness. But the value is only relative because it does not last. Look at verse 15. It says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity, or this also is vanity. He doesn't see anything past life under the sun, and so he believes that wisdom's gain over folly is fleeting because. Both the wise and the fool share the same faith. They're both going to die. In Solomon's estimation, death makes the ultimate pursuit of wisdom just as meaningless as anything else under the sun. And along the same lines, he writes in verses 18 through 19, these words, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. What is he saying? He's saying, I know I'm going to die. And so he asks this question, what is the point of all my work? I will accumulate a lot of stuff, but I can't take it with me. And the next generation will probably just squander it. It doesn't last forever. So what does my work even mean when I die? And he concludes there really is no meaning to work either under the sun. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 22, he asks the exact same question that he asked in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? And the question again, just like last week, demands this negative response. His conclusion is the net gain is nothing of all this stuff. Solomon comes to this conclusion so, so far in chapter 2, and he shares his experiment, experiment with us. And he concludes through his experiment that pleasure and wisdom and work do not bring lasting fulfillment. And we could walk out of here this morning again shaking our heads, but Solomon takes this informa- information today and he turns a corner for us a little bit. Look at what he says in verses 24 through 26. He says this, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Verse 25 is huge. Verse 26 For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting 
only to give to one who to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so in verses 24 and 25, we get our very first glimpse of hope here in Solomon's words because he concludes that there is nothing better than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in toil. Why? Why is that a glimpse of encouragement? Because all of these things are from the hand of God, he says. Now, at first glance, we could read these verses and believe that Solomon is saying something like this, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we're going to die. And maybe we could conclude that Solomon is telling us that since life is vanity, the best thing that you can do is gorge yourself and get drunk and be a workaholic. But that would be a serious misunderstanding of the point here in verses 24 through 26. Solomon is saying that eating and drinking and laboring, while devoid of ultimate meaning by themselves, they're infused with meaning and purpose and happiness and satisfaction when they are done in accord with God's design for them. All of these things exist to point us to God. These good things come from God's hand. These gifts are from God. Something that I'm sure most of us know and often forget is that in the beginning, when God created our world, He designed the world, and the Bible says, and it was good. He designed good things so that we could enjoy the material blessings that He gave us as a means to worship Him. Before sin, Eating and drinking and sex inside of marriage and work and all of these things were created to cause us to give God glory. But human sin has distorted God's creative order. And so now we look at these things that God has created for us as satisfaction in themselves. The satisfaction that only God could give us. And we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, and we see something new in Solomon. He isn't giving in to the despair of vanity anymore. Now he's starting to see the difference it makes to live with God instead of without him. And this is huge, and unless we see this progression in his thought, we will miss the practical benefits of Ecclesiastes. God's message to us is not that all is vanity under the sun. That's not the message. God's message is that joy and real joy comes from the hand of God. And when we see that, then that truth gives meaning to every other piece of our lives. I think that this may be the most important lesson for us to learn from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 today. And here it is. God is good. God is good. Despite much of contemporary American Christian thinking, God is not a killjoy. I wonder how many of us were given that impression growing up. I don't know if you were. I wonder how many of us have that impression still. Maybe you were taught that real Christianity means that if it feels good, then it's probably sin. It's possible today that you might even be thinking that this sermon is just another example of God being a spoil sport. Solomon tried all those things and he didn't find any joy in them and so God doesn't want you to do that. 
But I think that we need to hear this. This is not the truth of Christianity. Satan would love for us to believe that God is not wanting for us to have a joyous life. But not one of the things that Solomon mentions in chapter 2 is necessarily evil by itself. Music isn't bad. Laughter's not bad. Gardening's not bad. Sex with your spouse is not bad. And all of those other things that he mentioned can be good and holy. And this is so huge, I think. Those things can be good and holy if they're used the way that God intended them and designed them to be. The problem for us is that we have revolted against God, and so now we're broken and we abuse the good gifts he gives us, and our lives look something like Solomon because Solomon abused the gift that he gave him in love by having 700 wives and 300 concubines. That is an abuse of the good gift that God gave him. But here's the good news. In Christ, we are redeemed to recover and pursue God's design for our lives, which includes enjoying the material gifts that he's given to us. The point of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is don't enjoy gifts. The point is to point to the reality that we can enjoy the ones that God has given to us. Would the worship team come on up? In so many ways, Solomon's choices in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, they mirror mirror a story that probably many of you know that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15 called the story of the prodigal son. I'm sure lots of us remember it. Uh, A man had two different sons, and one of them asked his dad, Dad, can I have my share of the inheritance? I'm going to leave. And he went out, he took this share of his inheritance, and he went out and he partied it all away, looking for pleasure and joy and satisfaction and things. And I think as I looked at this story this week, and I've looked at it many, many different times, I sometimes will find myself believing That the sin of the son in the story is that he partied too much. And then he came to his senses. And then he wanted to leave his party days behind and go back to his dad. But as I looked at this story again this week, and as we study Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I just keep seeing something that I haven't seen before in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Here's what we often do when we read this story. We often forget that the story of the prodigal son doesn't just begin with partying. It actually ends with a party too. It's important for us to see that there is a party in the far country when the son takes his inheritance that revolves around this young man looking for satisfaction in things and it leaves him broken and torn. Jesus says, that this son longed to eat what the pigs were eating, and he was at his, the bottom. For him, there was no life under the sun. We maybe could even imagine him saying something like, this is all vanity, I'm chasing after the wind. But look what happened when he returned to his father. Luke chapter 15, verses 21 through 24 says this, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. 
It's important for us to see this this morning when we talk about God being good. There was a grand party when the son came back home. There was dancing and there was singing and there was eating. There was a party in the far country for sure, but it revolved around sin and now a party because he has come home. But what's the difference between the two parties? The difference in the two parties wasn't really the gifts that he was enjoying. It wasn't the stuff that made it a party. The difference was that the son could not enjoy the good gifts rightly until he was satisfied in his father's love. Couldn't enjoy the good gifts that God, his father had given him until he was satisfied in his love. This is the good news of the gospel. When we are satisfied in Christ and his love, we can know and enjoy life. We can enjoy marriage. We can enjoy children and work and laughter and wisdom and gardening and building and so many other pursuits that are not sinful if we enjoy them the way that God intended us to enjoy them. The point is this. The gifts are only fully enjoyed when we are fully satisfied in the giver of those gifts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word again this morning. God, thank you that these verses don't say, don't enjoy life. They say the enjoyment of life comes when we realize who these gifts come from. Gifts are road signs to the destination. God, I pray that we would have our eyes fixed on the reality that you are what we need. God, I pray that we would become a people that love the giver more than the gifts so that we can enjoy the gifts because we know the giver well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.